This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Now see that look in Mr. Pitt's eye, like 19th century literature has nothing to do with going to business school or medical school, right? Maybe. Mr. Hopkins, you may agree with him, thinking, yes, we should simply study our Mr. Pritchard and learn our rhyme and meter and go quietly about the business of achieving other ambitions. I have a little secret for you. Huddle up. Huddle up! We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. And medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. To quote from Whitman, oh me. O oh, life of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, O oh, me, O oh, life? Answer, that you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. The powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? When was the last time you read a poem? Probably a while ago, eh? If you're like most men today, you'd probably say that poetry is mostly for women, either for their entertainment or for wooing them with flowers. Well, that's where I'd say you're wrong. I played that Robin Williams quote from Dead Poet Society for a reason. And while Williams' character wasn't fit or physically strong, it's undeniable how much force he exerted over the hearts and minds of his students and over the audiences who've watched him in that timeless performance. That's a different kind of power than what can be found in front of a barbell, in our bank accounts, or in the bedroom. But it's no less significant of one. The great stories of history have come down to us in the form of epic poetry. From Homer's Iliad to Dante's Inferno and the epic of Gilgamesh. Surely you know Invictus, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. And of course the phrase, the road less traveled, is based on a poem by Robert Frost. Even William Wallace said of his loyal band of men, they fought like warrior poets. But poetry finds no home in the world of today's men, and I think we're lesser beings for it. Materialism is the acknowledged curse of our age. And it's a sneaky one. We long for a deep and authentic spirituality to return to our world, 
and yet we're afraid to really encounter it if it means experiencing genuine emotion. It's easier to focus on our bodies, our bank accounts, and babes. But isn't that just an escape to what's comfortable? Namely, materialism? Now, I get that balance is being reestablished after decades of softness, particularly in men. But I believe that poetry has retained the ability to tell us more about our shared lives as men than we are able to admit. And I think that's due to a lack of education. My hypothesis is that a few lines of a fully realized poem can tell us more about ourselves and our fellow man than perhaps even a picture or a painting. A painting aims to show us truth with our eyes. A poem, on the other hand, gives us the chance to see what's true for ourselves by looking within. And I think that's a manly pursuit. Probably one of the manliest. And over the course of the weeks and years to come, I'm going to prove it to you. But I won't be doing it alone. I'll have the help of a book called The Rag and Bone Shop of the Heart. It's available on Amazon, and it's a compilation of poems edited by the psychologist James Hillman, who was a direct student of Carl Jung, Robert Bly, author of the classic Iron John, and Michael Mead, a mythologist and scholar. The book is divided into 16 chapters with titles like Approach to Wildness, War, The House of Fathers and Titans, Making a Hole in Denial, Anger, Hatred, and Outrage, Mother and Great Mother, The Spindrift Gaze Toward Paradise, and more. All of these poems have been specifically selected to speak to our lives as men in a voice we might not be accustomed to hearing. Though not all of the poems in the collection were written by men, the three men behind the editing process selected them specifically to speak to men's experiences as men so that we might come to know ourselves better. So each week I'll read one poem from this book, or others that I own, and give you my thoughts and impressions. Now, I don't pretend to be a scholar or expert on poetry and poets, but I know how to read, and I know how I feel. And that's all the qualifications you, or I, or anyone needs to read and appreciate poetry. My hope is that over time you'll hear something that moves you, that inspires you, that helps you see yourself, see life, see men, and perhaps even see women in a new way. And maybe, just maybe, every Friday I can bring a moment of true leisure into your life, of appreciating something beautiful because it's beautiful, because it's ennobling, because it's transcendent. A poem won't necessarily make you better at your job, improve your dating prospects, add 10 pounds to your bench press, or take 10 pounds off the scale. But if I do this right, My hope is that the poems I read will speak to you about things that live within and around those goals, and that together we can decommodify a bit of our time, and create space for beauty's sake, and beauty's sake alone. These don't have to be your values, but they're mine. I look forward to sharing the journey with you. Let's begin. The first poem I'll be reading to start this series is called The Man Watching by Rainer Maria Rilke, translated by Robert Bly. I can tell by the way the trees beat, after so many dull days on my worried window panes, that a storm is coming. And I hear the far-off fields say things I can't bear without a friend, I can't love without a sister. The storm, the shifter of shapes, drives on across the woods and across time, and the world looks as if it had no age. The landscape, like a line in the psalm book, is seriousness and weight and eternity. What we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights with us is so great. 
If only we would let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm, we would become strong too, and not need names. When we win, it's with small things, and the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. I mean the angel who appeared to the wrestlers of the Old Testament. When the wrestler's sinews grew long like metal strings, he felt them under his fingers like chords of deep music. Whoever was beaten by this angel, who often simply declined the fight, went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows. By being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. So before we go into our discussion of the poem, The Man Watching, I'll give you a bit of background on Rainer Maria Rilke. He lived from 1875 to 1926, so he died at just over 50 years old. Uh, Wikipedia describes his poetry like this, quote, He invokes images that focus on the difficulty of communion with the ineffable in an age of disbelief, solitude, and anxiety. And this was during the transition to some of the earliest stages of modernity, during the Industrial Revolution as it took place in the United States, through World War I and into the Roaring Twenties. And doesn't this sound a bit like today, an age of disbelief, solitude, and anxiety? Milka is most famous for his letters to a young poet, which I highly recommend as a great guide for learning how to explore and appreciate our inner lives, and how cultivating that inner life is a way to create not only great art, but a fulfilling existence. And we see a bit of that idea in the poem. What stands out first, obviously, is the closing line, being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. But to understand what he truly means by this, we need to work backwards through the poem. There's five stanzas, so we're going to work backwards from stanza five, four, three, and ultimately to one, and that'll take us back to the end. The imagery will be made clear in that process. We'll go backwards, and then I'll read the poem again all the way through, and then leave you to reflect on Rilke's message in your own life. So obviously, the theme of this piece is about the necessity of struggle. And surely as men, that's something we can all understand. Improvement in anything doesn't happen on its own, whether that's improvement in our uh, physical fitness our financial health, our romantic life, our spiritual life even, improvement only happens through challenge. But this poem is not a celebration of triumph over struggle. Rather, it's about the importance of failure in the process. And that's a much harder subject. This idea that we grow strong by failure. That none of us are perfect. None of us get it right on the first try. And if we do get it right on the first try, we don't get it right on the second try or the third try. At some point, we'll get it wrong. Because getting it right all the time isn't the point. And I'm reminded now by a quote by Michael Jordan, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And that is why I succeed. But Rilke raises the stakes even further than just material accomplishments. He says not just failure, but decisive failure at the hands of, quote, constantly greater beings. What kind of greater beings? Well, how about the angel that Jacob wrestles with in chapter 32 from the book of Genesis, which is the illusion that Rilke is making here. So now we've moved from the fifth stanza to the fourth stanza. And I'll read chapter 32 from the book of Genesis so you know a bit of what Rilke is talking about. So this is Genesis chapter 32, verse 22, for those following along. 
That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. So this is a different kind of struggle. This isn't bow hunting or jujitsu or stock trading. This is the kind of struggle that renames men. And when do we take a new name? Well, we take a new name after a form of transformation. And for men, this shows up in initiation, for example, when you're no longer a boy but a man. In tribal cultures, boys often take on new names or spirit names to signify that transition. Or when you become a father, your new name is dad. And this is the significance of what Rilke encourages us towards, to struggle with what is extraordinary and eternal. He contrasts that form of struggle in the third stanza. What we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights with us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm, we would become strong too and not need names. Now, I'll let you reflect on what it would mean to be so strong that you don't need a name. Just take a second and think about that. But consider that to get there, you may need to be dominated by some immense storm, something unconquerable. And in the first two stanzas, Rilke lays the groundwork and sets the stage for the unconquerable imagery he'll be using to make his point. So now you can see the structure of the poem begin to emerge. He knows where he's going. He knows the point that he's making, and he's preparing you for it with the imagery in the first two stanzas. So we have the image of trees beating on a windowpane, fields saying things he can't bear to hear without a friend, words he can't love without a sister, the imagery of a storm driving on across the woods and across time. And then there it is, a line in a psalm book, seriousness and weight and eternity. So in the first stanzas, Rilke establishes a sense of gravity. This is a serious poem. This is a poem about confronting the unconquerable of life, of being defeated by life, but how those defeats make us great, all the way to contesting perhaps even with God. So what is this poem about? This poem is about daring to be great. It's about not being afraid of the fight even if that fight is unwinnable. Because defeat has value. It has teaching value. It has growth value. And that we as men should be proud of that and not shy away from it. I stepped into the ring. I lost to a greater opponent, but still I tried. And I'll try again, all the way up to the top of the mountain. Because I'm not tempted by victory. Consider the nobility in that statement. That winning does not tempt that man. That man, this superior man, this man that Rilke is calling us to be, that man wants to feel proud and strengthened by a harsh hand. I want to feel proud and strengthened by a harsh hand that works me over to change my shape and plays my very sinews to produce chords of deep music. I think that's some masculine shit. (laughs) Now I'll read the poem again, and I want you to listen to the words in a new way. I want you to think about it in your life. What do you choose to fight with? I can tell by the way the trees beat after so many dull days on my worried window panes that a storm is coming. 
and I hear the far-off fields say things I can't bear without a friend. I can't love without a sister. The storm, the shifter of shapes, drives on across the woods and across time, and the world looks as if it had no age. The landscape, like a line in the psalm book, is seriousness and weight and eternity. What we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights with us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm, we would become strong too and not need names. When we win, it's with small things, and the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. I mean the angel who appeared to the wrestlers of the Old Testament. When the wrestler's sinews grew long like metal strings, he felt them under his fingers like chords of deep music. Whoever was beaten by this angel, who often simply declined the fight, went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows. By being defeated, decisively, by constantly greater beings. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.